Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. It's been four weeks of me not preaching, and it's been a great four weeks, hasn't it? We've just, the messages from the, the staff have been wonderful. I have enjoyed it. Not just because of having four weeks off. It's the first time in three and a half years I've had that long of a stretch where I haven't preached and it's been just a huge blessing to me, uh, to be able to work on things I don't normally have time to work on and move some things behind the scenes forward. So, so that's been great. But what I've really loved about this series is the vivid illustrations in the lives of different people of how God has become so real in the story of their life, how God's story has impacted theirs. And, and, you know, just thinking back on Jeremy's story, just a a time of, of critical need of discovering purpose and identity, and God speaks to him so clearly about that, about becoming fishers of men. We saw in Dusty's story how through great loss, loss of uh, through divorce loss of both of his parents to death when he was a young child and yet there was this consistent presence of god that god later came and put words to it it's just the fact that he brought this sense of contentment and this this idea that he still loved as a son by god we saw how in Wendy's story, God interrupted her life and rewrote her story of fear from circumstances growing up and showed her how determined God is to never, ever back out and how he, she can't earn it and none of us can earn it and how that reshapes the reason why we follow it, frees us from guilt and shame and, and just gives us this burst of gratefulness in the way we follow God. And then we saw Denise last week talk about how when life was upside down because of broken trust in her life, just painful, bitter, broken trust, how God began to rewrite the story of her life and teach her to trust again. You see, all of us have a story of God's involvement in our life. Whether you're convinced about your faith in God or or whether you're not convinced, you're unsure, we, each and every one of us, have a story of God in our life. And when we take the simple time to just pause and reflect and think about that, just even that deepens our walk with Him. And even even so much more, even when we share it with others, it just deepens the sense of who He is and how He's real to us. As I close our three-story series today, I want to encourage you to be about sharing your story, about reflecting. But I'm going to share another story from my life about a verse that God placed in my life that, that over the years has been a verse that I, I remember weekly, oftentimes multiple times a week. This verse comes to mind and it's consistently reshaped not only who I am, but it's reshaped me and how I think about being a leader. We often talk about trust, Right? We often talk about that in terms of our faith, and we say that in order to have a faith in Christ, you need to have put your complete trust in God. Or sometimes we say it this way. Sometimes we say you need to surrender everything to God. Sometimes we use it, the term this way. We say you need to give up all your control to God. Surrender complete leadership to Jesus. We talk about it in different ways, right? And truth be told, those ways that we talk about it are at the very heart and core of moving our faith beyond religion to relationship. Without those concepts, we're just stuck in religion. 
But throughout my whole life, I found a huge tension. And I don't know about you, but I think, I think you probably will too as we, as we look at this. A huge tension to reconcile between this concept of complete surrender to God and the fact that we're also called to plan. We're also called to be leaders. Now, not, not everybody here may think of, you, of yourself as a leader. The fact of the matter is, while some of us have more recognizable roles as leaders, every single one of us leads. If you're a parent, you're a leader over your children. If you're a part of this church and you believe in the vision of being a friend with faith, then you're asked, being asked by God to be a leader in that, to take initiative, to plan how you will be intentional about being friends to people around you who are in need of friendship, who are in need of finding God. If you believe in this vision that we have of, of being at all about relationships at the church, then, then God's asking you to take initiative, to plan, to lead when somebody goes in the hospital or when somebody's going through a point of need, to take initiative and to plan, to be a part of caring for them, going to them, praying for their needs and being a part of those. Every single one of us lead. If you really look back even at Jeremy's story, the, the fact that, that God is calling us all to be fishers of men and women. The very fact of God calling all of us to be that means that He's asking us to take initiative. He's asking each and every one of us to exercise leadership in helping in some way someone find God and His love and come to follow Jesus. But the tension is still there. How do we reconcile the tension between being absolutely surrendered, giving up all control and leadership? We can ask that, we can ask that question in, in, in the form of a simple question. How do we lead and follow Jesus? How do we as, especially in our context, professionals, business owners, managers, leaders, goal-oriented, striving-driven people to be successful, whichever term describes you, how do we learn to live that way and surrender all and follow Jesus? Now, most of us can relate to the way I was taught to be successful growing up. I was taught you needed three things to be successful. You needed to be able to set measurable good goals. You needed to be able to plan well and work hard, persevering to reach those goals. And you needed to be a person who took initiative. You don't wait. You act. You lead. You pursue those. You don't blame other people. That's how you're successful. And doesn't that kind of sum it up? And when we look around and we see all the motivational speeches that we hear on a regular basis, aren't those really just summed up by, if you want to rise to the top of your company, you're going to set good goals, manage your time well, stay focused on the right things, work hard, and you'll get there. Or if you want to lose weight, you're going to set good goals, you're going to manage those goals, you're going to discipline yourself, you're going to stay focused, and you'll get there. That's what we say success is. Great leadership books say it as well. Jim Collins in a fabulous book called Good to Great says it this way. He says, greatness is not a function of circumstances. Greatness, it turns out, is largely a matter of conscious choice and discipline. Another great book written by Ram Sharan called Execution is all about how we plan, how we implement, how we ensure success in our life. And I love those books. In fact, those are two books that I, I want to reread, and I don't want to ever reread very many books that I read. I don't know about you, but I'm not a rereader of books. But there's still this tension. Because right relationship with God means following Him, means giving up 
control to him. And yet the pursuit of success, we all know it's critical for us to plan well and execute well and try to control as much of our environment as we can. But the problem for us is that when we plan well and we succeed, it's so easy for us internally in our attitudes, in our emotions, in our thoughts to subtly move back into this place of self-reliance. We succeed and we unsurrender. We take back control of our lives. We say things like, I've done that and I can do it again and I can get there. Right? We all talk like that and we're all tempted to be like that. Or sometimes even in our lives when we plan and success isn't going like we want it to go. We're not quite getting there or maybe we're not getting there at all. Things aren't going as fast or we're not getting there at all. We take on this stress. We take on this anxiety and we work harder at focus. We work harder at planning. And our life becomes something that's not really reflective of the peace and the joy and the contentment that the Bible says God wants us to so abundantly walk in. How can we be a leader and a follower of Jesus? How can we plan, push, focus, take initiative, and still remain dependent on God rather than falling back into self-reliance and pride in our own success? Do you ever wrestle with that tension? Am I the only one who wrestles with that? You see, much of my story in following God is simply centered around this very struggle of that tension. And I'm sure Wendy is probably sitting back there somewhere wanting to dance up and down and scream, Amen! Because she's had to live with me on that one. And yet God, early on in my life, had me catch the, had a scripture catch my eye and catch my heart. And it's something I remember, I don't know of a week that's gone by without me thinking of this verse multiple times. And this verse not only directly portrays this tension, but the verse and the context around it holds the key to the resolution of the tension. We want to look at that today. Proverbs 16.9. It's simply this. The mind of a man or a woman plans his steps. Plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. Do you see the tension in that verse? I want to plan my way. You want to plan your way. We all want to be intentional about success, yet even when we plan, we're not in control of the destiny. It's the Lord who establishes and directs our steps. And part of the struggle for me in that, when I feel that, is simply this. When I, when I wrestle with this idea of surrender, when I even wrestle with the idea of this verse, sometimes I'm tempted to get caught in this feeling of helplessness, even this sense of futility. In life, You see, I can remember going through a lot of times in life when things weren't going as I planned. They weren't going well or they weren't going anywhere or there was failure looming. For that matter, sometimes even when success was going and feeling like if I surrendered to God that I was not being responsible. I was giving up. I wasn't working hard enough. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that feeling. I don't like the feeling of surrender, of giving up. And yet, isn't that what surrender is all about? 
Isn't surrender raising the white flag? You give up. You quit. You realize you've failed. You've realized you don't have the power and the ability to do it on your own. You're ceding control of your entire destiny and everything about you to someone else and you are walking into the unknown. None of us like that. I don't know of any general in history that's probably ever liked surrendering. Yet complete surrender is exactly what God demands of us. Now that's one tension in leadership. Another tension for us comes out of when we're following God following Jesus as goal-driven leaders and and how we deal with our relationship with God when things don't go according to plans. When things are going in a way that we don't understand, we don't like the way they're going in our life, the journey that we're having in our life, whether it's work or family or church or faith or whatever, is so different than our plans. And we find ourselves wrestling with God, frustrated with God, even avoiding him. The last time I spoke with you, I spoke about part of my story where I fought against God's purposes in my life for a very long time early on in my life and, and, and just really hard. But when I finally decided to follow God, he began to speak really clearly to me about some focus in life, about some roles that he wanted me to fulfill in life, about some purpose that he had for my life. Now, I've never shared the, uh, this part of my story as openly as I'm going to share it today. And I've got to tell you, it's a little uncomfortable for me because in order for me to illustrate this message, I'm not only going to share some of my struggles, but I'm also going to share some of the areas of success God has brought in my life. And frankly, it's a whole lot harder for me to share the, the areas of success because I feel like a, it makes me feel like a pompous idiot talking about it out loud at times. So just bear with me and I'm sorry. Uh, for that uncomfortableness if I exhibit it later on. But at the age of 18, it was 1981. I was just walking through a normal day. Great day. I was doing what every other 18-year-old wanted to do. I had to get my work done fast so I could go play tennis and go have fun outdoors. It was a beautiful day. Just I was thinking about just those things that an 18-year-old thinks about. I wasn't thinking deep. It was a summer break. It was just time off. I was just going to have fun that day. And God all of a sudden interrupted my day in one of the most powerful moments I've ever experienced Him. Just, a, just out of nowhere, this flood of the heaviness of His presence. And, and it's the closest, it wasn't audible, but it's the closest to audible I think I've ever heard God in my life. And He just simply said this, I've called you to be a bishop. And then it was all over. And it was just a sunny day again. And all I was thinking about was having fun. Now, for those of you who come from different traditions, bishop may mean different. I was in the United Methodist tradition at the time. My dad was a pastor. And, and there, in that context, so what I understood it to mean was God was saying, you're going to one day be leading many churches. Because in a bishop context, United Methodist Church, they were the ones who oversaw the 500 churches in whatever state or whatever district they were in. And the normal route to a position of that nature in life is you, you go through your seminary, you get out, you get appointed to this small, really struggling rural church that can barely afford to keep you. If you do well enough there, meaning usually if you can survive that, you get promoted to a mid-sized church somewhere in maybe a slightly larger town. Instead of, you know, 300 people in the town, you might get 
800 people in the town and you get to go to a mid-sized church and if you do really well there you might get appointed to be on a board at the denomination and then and then eventually you get promoted to a larger city and a little bit of larger church and if you do well there then you also get to chair a board for the denomination and then eventually you become the district superintendent maybe the regional superintendent that's the normal path of how you get there Following that plan for me became very confused three years later in 1984 when my dad, who's a United Methodist pastor, left the United Methodist Church and I felt like God said, I want you to not be a part of that as well. Not that there's anything wrong about being a part of there. I have a lot of friends who are great pastors in the United Methodist Church, right? So that's not the point. I ended up floating around through most of my 20s without a connection to any organization through which God could fulfill that dream, that vision, that word that He had spoken to me. Plans weren't working out. Many of my peers were senior pastors already. And I was still floating around bivocationally. Now let's put a comma there. In 1987, there was another one of those moments with God. Uh, I, was, uh, I was sitting in a class uh, with a professor named Paul Watney. And he was talking about the story of these two movements that were born out of the coattails of the Jesus People Movement in California in the 60s and early 70s called Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard. And how these movements were planting churches like crazy. New churches. That's the, the planting churches is a church term for starting new churches from scratch in the United States. Now, I grew up in Minnesota. And I may be wrong because I was just a kid and I never had the stats. But as I recall, Minnesota had like a thousand United Methodist churches. And we were by far the minority in Minnesota. It seemed like there was a church on every single corner. Why on earth would you ever want to start new churches in the United States? Did you know, I put some statistics together a few years ago in my, in my previous job working with church planning and church, uh, and, and if you look at the studies, America needs about 10,000 new churches a year just to keep even with population growth. So I was sitting in that class and he was telling these stories. And it was another one of those beautiful moments where God just interrupted me, interrupted me in all the tiredness of the day and said, I want a distinctive of your ministry to be church planting. And I said, yes, Lord. And I went to work planning for that. I got together with the professor within a week and said, I, I don't see any church planning course on the menu. Can I create a directed study? And he said, sure. And he and I started doing research. And at that time in 1987, there were no books that we could find written about how to plant a church in the United States context. They were all foreign missions based. And so we just created our own course. And I worked for a TA. I worked as a TA for another professor who was my mentor at that time who had also planted churches. So I just, whatever way I could, I tried to learn as much as I possibly could about it. And here's where the two stories begin to merge. My mentor transitioned out of teaching to be a staff pastor in a large, fast-growing megachurch in Chicago. And as I graduated from, from seminary and finished my degree, he was trying to get me a job there and try to bring me there. And it was, I was looking at it going, oh man, to be back with him in ministry, that'd be fantastic. It was a great pay increase, a huge pay increase from what I was making. And to be in a mega church, I mean, that all sounds, that all sounds like a fantastic resume to do those things that God had spoken to me about. And instead, God asked me to stay in Tulsa and be a part of a small 250 person church that wasn't really growing, take a 50% pay cut, didn't have a vision for church planting. See, I had plans 
I knew the path to fulfilling those words from God, what it would take. I knew what other people said it would take. And this wasn't it. At least it was the slow version to it. Because I figured if God wanted me to be a leader like that, that I'd at least have a full-time gig in ministry before I was 29 years old instead of being my vocational through all my, through all my 20s. I mean, at this pace, I wasn't going to get to there until I was 80. And then why would He not want me to be a part of a fast-growing congregation, a large congregation in a, mega, in a, metro, a large metro area? It was really a frustrating, it was really a confusing time for me in life. I figured, what's God up to? But I settled in quickly to this ministry in the church in Tulsa. And all of a sudden, three months later, everything started to explode. In 18 months, the church went from 250 to 950. The ministry areas God had given me grew by sixfold and twelvefold, respectively, in the ones. And we started an internship program to work with pastors who were wanting to be pastors. And I, I started that and led that. And all of a sudden, people started coming to me without me even ever mentioning it and saying, I want you to teach me to plan a church. I mean, how does that work? How can that be? I'd never planted myself. I'd never even been a senior pastor. But the mind of a man plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. Where are you in your journey to the dream you believe God's dream is for your life? Where are you? After eight church plants and a number of pastors being sent out and a bunch of Christian counselors going through the internship program, God did another amazing, surprising thing in our life. When I was transitioning in ministry out of that setting in Tulsa to something else, I was calling around in the movement I was a part of, the national office and all the regional offices, seeking to be a senior pastor, of course, because that's the next logical step, right? And instead, the national office and the Pacific region office both created positions and pursued me to become the leadership development head for both of their movements. I ended up in the Pacific region. And in 1998, at the age of 35, not 50 like I thought it would be, I was serving in a bishop role, overseeing 100 churches, doing exactly what God spoke to me in 1981 and 1987, overseeing church planting and leadership development and turning around dying churches. It made no sense. But the mind of a man plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. Where are you in your journey to fulfill the dream that you have that God has given you for your life? Maybe this verse in my story may provide some comfort for you, but still, how do we resolve that tension between leadership, planning, and being a follower? Because frankly, during most of this time that I'm telling you about, I was fighting against God as much as I was working with Him to fulfill these things because His steps were not what I had planned. The process, I felt, the process was missing critical steps of things that I needed to experience and do to fulfill the vision. And they certainly, even the steps, were certainly not the plans that other people thought that you should go through to be in that position. So let's look further at the Scripture today. 
The context of the Scripture, even though on the surface it sets up this tension for us, isn't trying to set up a dichotomy between surrender, planning, and leadership. Planning is in fact lauded, even in the verses just prior to this. Planning in the Proverbs is lauded as wise. It's something that we are all to do, to be intentional about planning. And yet the writer of this proverb, this, these Proverbs, this great King Solomon, is teaching us the ultimate lesson of how we can be a leader as a follower of Jesus. And the first lesson of, of that is simply this, that this passage encourages us to confidence in God. When I ponder this verse, I hear God saying, hey, Rob, hey, Julie, hey, Mary, hey, Mike, hey, whoever, hey, Ross, you can plan all you want, but whether your plans are in sync with mine or even if they're not quite right and you don't realize it, I'm going to establish your steps. I'm going to do for you what I've called you to do. I'm going to get you there. And that in and of itself, for many of us, relieves some internal tension. But there's even more because the verse that I quoted up front, the, the main one that stands out to me, 16.9, is actually the closing verse of a lesson on how to lead and be a follower of Jesus at the same time. You know, Proverbs is this book that's kind of this collection of almost random wise sayings. And there are a few sections where it, it, it's like the flow between a bunch of different verses, but a lot of times it's this verse is just standalone and this verse is standalone. Here I think it's one of those flows because you see in this passage a parallelism between verse 1 and verse 9. Let's look at verse 1. It says this, The plans of the heart belong to man. Starts out very similar, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Slightly different, but still similar. Verse 2, it says, All the ways of a man or a woman are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. You know, when we're, as leaders, setting our goals, we're making our plans, we're leading, there's a strong pull in us to be confident in the fact that we're right. In fact, I think most of us think we're right most of the time. Most of us think our motives are pure and right most of the time. And, and truth be told, confidence is a key part of leadership. People don't follow somebody who's not confident. So how in the face of this tension do we plan, lead and plan with confidence? I remember one of my first really big challenges in leadership and ministry. I had to remove this guy who, from, from his position who was in many respects more gifted than I, but who was, he was struggling with some inappropriateness in uh, opposite sex boundaries. It wasn't immoral, it was just consistent inappropriateness that he wasn't willing to work on. And the conversation in kind of a, uh, short form went like this after I spent time reflecting on this very scripture before having that conversation. It was like, Bob, I need to ask you to step down. His response was, Ross, but Ross, I'm more gifted than you. And how can you even consider asking that? Where is your spiritual authority or your leadership expertise to even ask that of me? And he was right. My response was, Bob, I know you're more gifted in a lot of ways. And here's some ways, and I listed ways, and I told him the good things that God had done through him, and there were indeed good things. But I said, God's made me your leader, and whether my motives are right or wrong, my conscience is clear that I believe this is the best choice. And the reality is, if I'm right and you respond well, Bob, to this correction, God will bless you. And if I'm wrong, God will still establish your steps. 
and bless you. There's something about being able to deal with this honestly that God is saying to us, I understand that you always think your motives are right. And they may not be. And I'm okay with that. Because even though you plan, even though you think you're doing the right thing, I'm still going to establish your steps. And my grace is that big for you. And it takes the defensiveness out of the room for us. The second lesson in resolving the tension is simply this part of the sterner that God is asking us to make is to let go of our need to be right as the source of our confidence. And instead, refocusing that confidence on Him and on the next verse that, of this wise saying that goes and says this, Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Now, we hear that a lot, and we think, well, if I'm committed to God and I'm really following God, then whatever I do, I, I kind of tell God, here's my plans, I'm committing to them to you, and it's going to ensure success. It kind of comes across a lot of times to us as a success formula. But that's not what it's saying. It's actually, it's really about an, an orientation in our response to what he's saying in the previous verses. He's saying to us, if I cannot be certain of my motives, that they're pure, and if I can't even know that my plans are for sure in line with yours, taking me to the same place where you want me to go, then daily I need to reorient my focus to trust in God to correct me, to lead me to the right place, surrendering my plans to Him, holding them loosely before Him. And as I've gotten better at this, this still, this is not a master move on. This is a daily struggle for all of us. But as I've gotten better of it, I've learned to not make as detailed a plans for what bishop or what planting churches means in my life. You see, after years of fighting with God, thinking if I was going to have any impact, I had to be a church planter myself, and taking my very pregnant seven months along uh, with our first child wife to Denver in the summer of 1993 to look at homes because I thought I had to plant a church in Denver and God was going to take us there, and walking through these little tiny homes that we could barely even afford anything that bigger than a small box. And I remember her walking pregnant into these little galley kitchens and realizing that the two of us couldn't be in there at the same time while she was pregnant because her tummy was so big we couldn't pass each other because it was so small. I mean, these were really small homes and fighting with God around all of that. See, I was insistent that my own logical plans, that this is the way you get from A to Z. Commit your plans to the Lord and they will be established. doesn't mean everything you plan is going to succeed. What it does mean is that if you stay in this place of trusting the God who directs your steps regardless of your plans, and as a result, you won't be defensive You won't feel like a failure or be self-defeating when things don't go as you plan. You hold them loosely before God. That's what committing them to Him is. And then Solomon challenges our perspective more, going to verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Wow. Now, God's not the author of evil. We're not going to spend time dealing with that. The Bible is very clear all throughout the Bible that God is not the author of evil, but that verse all of a sudden makes it feel like it is almost. So what's Solomon saying here? First, let's ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose? What's the purpose? Because he talks about purpose in the verse. We heard it in Wendy's message a couple weeks ago. 
Our purpose, his purpose in life is to fulfill the covenant he made to bless us and to make us a blessing to all nations, to all peoples, to redeem us and work through us to redeem others. That means in our leadership, whether it's in the boardroom or in the warehouse or in the home, whether it's making a sales pitch or training your employees or training your kids, that means our primary purpose in leadership, God's primary purpose for leadership, is to bring His redemption into people's lives. To replace the guilt with the peace of being loved amazingly and accepted by God. To replace the striving to be good enough with this passionate, joyful contentment that I get to be a part of, the good things He's doing. To replace the pain in our lives and the lives of other people's with a sense of healing. But naturally, that means God will take us as people into situations where redemption is needed, where evil exists, where wounds are constantly being picked and festering, where the pain of injustice is being inflicted on us and others. And God has a purpose for us being there. God may even allow an evil person to be promoted, an undeserving evil person to be promoted above you, to either provoke need in the people around you to want to be redeemed or to set the person up to a place where they're going to have a provocation in their life where they feel a need to be redeemed. God's purpose through our leadership in whatever setting in all of life is to bring redemption. And redemption is only needed when something, evil, pain, or sin, needs to be redeemed. A lot of times it's no fun for us to be in those places, is it? But when we find ourselves in those situations... When I found myself in those situations, it it turns into this time where it's so easy for me to want to get angry and get frustrated and blame and wonder why and make me want to run away or or go to another job to find room where I can run. You know, you you probably felt that before as well. There's so many times in my leadership where I've faced this kind of difficulty. Even, Even one time I remember facing this difficulty where two people over me would be part of a group of like seven or eight people who would approve all my plans and hold me accountable to those plans and yet two of them would leave that room after they voted unanimously to approve that and go out and try to undermine what I was doing and gossip and say weird things. And I fought with God. And truth be told, I sometimes fought with my wife trying to figure out how to get through those times or fighting with her that we need to move on because God's got a roadblock here and He's telling us to move and go somewhere where there's room to run. But again and again, I'd come back to the Scripture. Regardless of my plans or the plans of others, God is the one who establishes my steps and God would keep me in those situations. And the honest reality, looking back, is some of the greatest joy, some of the greatest satisfaction, some of the greatest redemption came out of those most frustrating conflict times of life. Why? Because God knows that you're an agent of redemption. And He's going to put you in there for a purpose. The next verses add more perspective to this verse as leaders. Everyone who is proud of heart, it says, is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, He will not go unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear or reverence of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. 
And yes, this first verse, verse 5, talks about that perpetrators of evil will not forever go undealt with. And there was some comfort for me in that when these people were approving my plans and then connivingly undermining me, trying to sabotage me. But I think this proverb is actually speaking more to me as a leader than the person perpetrating the evil. You see, if you fully acknowledge God's purpose is not just to establish your plans, but to primarily redeem people through you in the process, then you'll look at those people perpetrating evil differently. You'll not put yourself above them. You'll not consider yourself better in pride, but rather you will treat them with the loving kindness in hopes that their sin, like yours, will be forgiven. Do you see the freedom? Do you see the confidence God is speaking into us in these verses as leaders? It brings freedom to plan and take initiative to move forward while at the same time rewiring our attitudes, our thoughts, and our heart to not be threatened when our plans are not God's or when our motives are not clean and pure as we thought they were or when there are roadblocks of evil or wrong or injustice standing in our way. There's a place of contentment and surrender to God that allows us as leaders to lead with peace and confidence. It involves daily reorienting our heart. It results in a flexibility in our lives when plans don't happen. It removes the striving of our hearts to prove ourselves, and yet leaves us fully confident that God will indeed fulfill His promises to us. Solomon goes on in wrapping up this lesson on leadership. He says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. That's God's plan for you. And better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Now, the point of verse 8 obviously has this, this surface obviousness to us, but it's bigger than that. If we as leaders learn to lead from a place of ab- absolute surrender, if we learn we don't need to place our confidence in our need to be right, and instead we learn to be agents of redemption in our workplace leadership, in our community leadership, in our church leadership, in our family leadership, then even if we run into roadblocks, but trust him to establish, we'll, we'll still trust him to establish our ways, and he will do so even if it's different than we planned. And he's inviting you to not be frustrated with barriers or little, small beginnings, but to stay in a right place in your heart with him, because the mind of a man or a woman plans their way. Proverbs says it's wise to plan, so plan all you want. Be as aggressive. Take initiative. Think as a leader. But the Lord directs your steps. So surrender and let the stress of the time and the detours, the setbacks melt away. What are your dreams of making an impact in life, in your leadership, as a spouse, as a parent, as a worker, as a follower of Jesus, through church or through ministry? And what's not going as you wish? You see, every time I ponder our verse today, I go back and remember these different words, the ones I've shared today and others that God has spoken to me over my life. I thank God I can trust you to establish those. In fact, one of them I go to back to almost every, every week is this whole dream that God gave Wendy and I when we were thinking about coming to Quest. 
This whole process of us even coming here started with a number of dreams and some, and some words. And I don't know, maybe you don't think that much about dreams. Maybe you've never thought about how God speaks to you through dreams. But the Bible is chock full of examples of how God speaks through dreams. And it's a very common, one of the most common ways the Bible talks about God speaking. And I want to share again with you, some of you have heard it, many of you have heard it, the dream God gave us that really was the biggest focal point for purpose and why he was bringing us to Quest. And as I do, I just want to invite you to close your eyes and as I try to my best to paint the picture of that dream through words, allow your mind to picture it in your own mind. It was July 13th, 2007. It was you know, 3 a.m. in the morning, whatever. God gave me a dream. I can't remember the exact time. We wouldn't even send our resume to Quest for nine months after that yet. But I had this very vivid dream and God's presence was so strong I knew it was from Him. And I saw myself in this, on this, in this hotel room walking out to this balcony. It was on the 12th floor of the, of the hotel. And overlooking this beautiful Midwest town. Just allow yourself to picture that. And I knew in the dream, for some reason, I didn't hear words, but I knew in the dream that it was in Ohio. And it was just beautiful Midwestern town. And I'm standing out there looking at it and all of a sudden the scene completely changes and everything in front of me is this huge, deep strip mine. You ever seen a strip mine? Just ugly, brown, dirt, just a mile deep, a mile across, just huge. And out of the strip mine there are coming two, two roads full of cars. They're kind of the, the World War II vintage cars, all in perfect condition. Bumper to bumper, just trying to get out. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars. And you couldn't see where they were coming from and you couldn't see the end of them. And they just kept coming and coming and coming. And in the dream, I remember having the strong emotional sense that there was just this, there was this passion to get out of the barrenness of the strip mine. And I remember standing there in the dream on the hotel thinking, wow, this is really weird, a hotel, a really nice hotel, uh, having their balcony overlook a strip mine. It just didn't make sense. And then all of a sudden I realized that what was going on was God in the dream was making very clear to me how He was seeing this place and what He was doing there. And then just like that, a snap of a finger, it changed from these cars a distance away to two lines of people right close to me. Still, you couldn't see the end. There were just so many coming and there was still even so much more passion to be free. And, the, and as you looked at the people, they were all dressed in perfectly pressed uh, charcoal and gray business suits. But as you looked at the faces, the faces looked ashen and dead, kind of like a bad makeup job of somebody in a coffin. And as I looked at that, at the very end, God made this invitation. Do you want to go to Ohio to be the leader of something I'm already doing to bring my color to people's lives? To bring color. Color to their skin, life. to remove the forced sameness, the pressure to perform, the pressure and the demands of what success means. Can you see it? And here's the point of the dream. God is stirring a great hunger 
people wanting something more. He said he's already doing it. That's before I came. He's already doing it. He's already stirring a hunger, a passion for wanting more, to be free of that sameness, to understand who they really are and how they're made in God and the grace and the freedom that he wants to bring. And then as I was thinking about this message a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in the kitchen and my son on the iPad was playing this song by Brandon Heath. I just felt like God speak to me in a sense or, or just prompt me and say, this is, this is something I want Quest to hear. So I want you to listen to this video, music video and watch the images and then we're going to close after that. We had to stop before all the yeah, yeahs. That's an older song. My, wife, my daughter and I, I even remember back in Oregon when we were living there still driving to school hearing that song and teasing each other about the yeah, yeahs and making fun of it and the bad lip syncing in the video. But let's look beyond that a second. The reason I think that song speaks to us is because of the images and the words are amazing. There are streams of people going somewhere. Just like in the dream that God gave that says this is what, I, what He's doing here through us at Quest. There are streams and lines of people going somewhere. And the words are so amazingly powerful. It says, give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. And when we think of the brokenhearted, when we think of the forgotten, so often we think of human trafficking and we think of the poor, we think of the despised. We think of overseas missions and we think of all the social justice things. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But a couple of weeks ago, I was standing in the halls of the middle school uh, waiting to pick up my son who has a guitar lesson at noon every day of the week, every, every Wednesday. And I was watching the kids go by me and I was, I was looking at them going, man, they're so pretty. They're so handsome. This is such a nice place, walking down those halls. And when I read all of the publications and all the articles that are out there in Christian magazines and on the news and the secular news about all the social justice issues, there's so much publication going on about those needs. And I had to ask myself this question, who really are the forgotten? Not taking anything away from those other needs because I want to be a part of meeting those needs. But who really are the forgotten? And to use Heath's language, he looks over at the girl and she smiles to hide what's underneath. I thought the images in this video really portray our community because as I stood there in that, in, in that middle school and understanding the reality of what life is really like from all of the studies out there, I realized that I couldn't finish a single sentence with, without several kids who had had suicidal thoughts that week who were secretly cutting on themselves walking by me. And I realized that I couldn't take three steps down that hallway without walk, walking past multiple kids who had been sexually exploited in such a way that they were living a broken-hearted view of themselves and of love. And it's all hidden by our pretty faces, our pretty clothes, our nicely pressed business suits, our pretty buildings. And it's so easy for us to walk around our community and think of them and not even realize the pain. 
Yet I know from my vantage point as a pastor and what I hear, and I know from my vantage point of studies that there is so much forgotten pain in our neighbors' households. And God's call to us through this whole series of these stories, and as we've looked at the staff share our stories, is God paints this beautiful color in our lives when His story becomes a part of ours. And His intention of painting that story of beauty in your life, of redemption in your life, is that you would share that same paint and that your story would color other people's lives who are forgotten, who are brokenhearted, who hide behind the smiles, who we feel are so hard to reach because they're not open. Did you notice in his words, in his actual lyric on the screen, I typed it exactly the way he typed in his lyric, that, that they're the ones that are far beyond reach, oops, I forgot it, I meant to, actually ends with a question mark. They're reachable. God has said to us that he is already stirring, his spirit is already at work in those neighbors in those friends of our kids, in those families of our colleagues. He is already at work and they are searching for something more. We can expect as we tell our stories, as we reach out a simple caring hand to not be there alone, but we will meet up with what God is already doing where His Holy Spirit's already at work. He's inviting us to tell our stories and paint other people's lives with His life. And I want us to, as we continue to worship, we, we do worship at the end as well because we want time for you to think and respond to God in praise. I want you to think of that, how you can tell your story, how God is at work, and with anticipation, go out expecting this week to meet God at work in somebody's life as you share your story or as you listen to theirs. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.com.